welcome to episode 119 of Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I'm Alan Kavana, joined as always by David Smith. On this episode, a long talk about passing. Passing? Yes, passing! It is so much more nuanced than you think, and that's why we are here for you. That, plus our big Richmond preview, where we ask what strategies are really worth the risk. But first, as always, we start with a look back. David, back on episode 111, we discussed the formation of Joe Gibbs Racing's number 11 team. Now let's discuss JGR's number 19 team and how it was initially built. Uh, let's think back a little bit, David, because we we have known and we had known juggernaut multi-car teams for a long time now, post-2000, if you will. Roush had five teams at one point, remember, all in the playoffs. Hendrick had four teams for a surprisingly long time going way back. And Joe Gibbs Racing, they were right there in the conversation, especially when they expanded to three teams back in 2005. Now, again, this was a team um, a team of means, a team of success, ton of sponsors and all that, but it would be another 10 years before that team made a jump to including a fourth entry. In 2015, the opportunity was there, Carl Edwards was a free agent, and it proved to be the right time to add a fourth team, the number 19 team, to Joe Gibbs Racing. Why is this significant, David? I think it's significant in large part because of that hesitation that you alluded to, that that 10-year wait. Uh, The reputation of the number 19 team, the fourth Joe Gibbs Racing team, predates its actual on-track history because the fourth JGR car strictly as a concept, uh, just a mere possibility, held a mystique before anything ever actually came to fruition. It was long rumored. And as you pointed out, JGR was a superpower that hadn't yet expanded to four cars, but they always had the capacity to do it. And as you'd expect, it was a common question about expansion in media availabilities going on multiple years. And the answers that we heard from Joe Gibbs uh, back then from J.D. Gibbs, um, the, the answers were some form of we don't want to expand just to expand. We want the right scenario. We want the right driver, the right sponsor partners, everything that you would expect them to say. And, you know, walking in to my first agency job uh, in in uh, late 2006, early 2007, that was when I became privy to some details in contract negotiations and details in driver movement. And between mm, 07 to 2014, which is when this team became announced, this fourth JGR car was used as leverage. The threat of a driver possibly going to JGR's hypothetical at that point, (laughs) fourth car, served as this tremendous negotiating bluff. And it might not have been entirely uh, real as an escape route for some of these drivers, but other teams knew that A, JGR wanted a fourth car, uh, B, had the wherewithal to produce a fourth car. And C, could afford a high-priced driver. So the threat of going to a fourth JGR car for some teams was real. Uh, It made Casey Kane wealthier. He had a a, a number of negotiations during this time frame, and JGR was always this outside possibility. Same too for Greg Biffle. He... he, Hmm. very likely utilized it as leverage before he signed an extension with Roush in 2008. And Carl Edwards ends up actually getting this ride. I would argue that the fourth JGR car made him wealthier before there actually was a fourth JGR car Uh, because it, he, he was rumored to go to JGR replace Joey Logano in the 20. And that might've moved Logano to a fourth car or, or Edwards would have been in a fourth car what have you. Either way, he was going to go to a Gibbs for a lot of money. It didn't happen. He ended up back at Roush probably for more money than he would have gotten if he had just signed a normal extension. But finally in 2015, and it was Eris, which sells modems and routers, and Stanley Tools, they were the the flagship sponsors. 
The number 19 car finally became a reality with Carl Edwards and Darian Grubb as the crew chief. And since its inception, there have been three different drivers, Edwards, Daniel Suarez, and Martin Truex. And there have been four different full-time crew chiefs, Darian Grubb, Dave Rogers, Cole Pern, and James Mall. Allen, the first year in which the driver and crew chief who began the season together was the same as the previous season that began the season <laughs> was this year, 2021. Wow. wow. <laughs> and yeah, and this, I mean, this was not entirely due to some mismanagement of the situation. Carl Edwards retired earlier than expected with years left on his contract. Dave Rogers stepped away from the crew chief role for personal reasons in the early part of 2017. Martin Truex and Cole Pern came available because of Furniture Row's closure. Maybe JGR did have something to do with that one, but Cole Pern left after just one year, uh, left the sport entirely. And amazingly for the team in which JGR showed incredible restraint during that that boom of the sport and after the economic recession when spending was still pretty high within the industry, uh, and they told everyone that they didn't want to expand just to expand, in hindsight, that, that is kind of what has happened. Uh, accidentally, I'll, I'll add. That, that, that is kind of the case. This will end up being the f- team's first full year with some legitimate continuity, and that is so bizarre to think for a big organization to go through this much change, especially one that prides itself on its continuity. Denny Hamlin's been there, uh, the full-time driver of the number 11 car since 20, uh, 2006. Uh, Kyle Busch at the 18 since 2008. But here's this number 19 team, and it's successful. It is a winning race program, but it is also sort of the black sheep of Joe Gibbs Racing that at least feels like it operates to the beat of its own drum. And but pair that that lack of continuity with the level of success it could have had. David, the 19 car, one one Carl Edwards restart away from a title, one Martin Truex Jr. crew pit stop tire reversal away potentially from a second title, right? I mean, despite the lack of continuity, the level of success it could have had without some just two crazy moves uh, is, is crazy to think about because you you pair how well they've done with the lack of continuity and it could have even been better than it is. Yeah, and and amazingly, the, the, the audible from Daniel Suarez to Martin Truex, it put them back on, I'll say an age path because Truex and Edwards are the same age, that they were set to capitalize on a driver's peak years. It just was not the driver they initially thought when they launched this program. And you're right. For as many of uh, Edward's foibles that we've talked about, what we didn't see from him was the possibility of a polished future once he hit his peak years. So they missed out on that. And, And that was a big part of kind of the the problem with this lack of continuity. Now they have turned it into something. I will give them that. They have fumbled their way into it. <laughs> um re- but really for the most part problems not of their own making really. They they've just kind of had to be reactive. And when I think of Joe Gibbs Racing, I think of an organization that through its history has been entirely proactive. Uh, you know, in identifying Dale Jarrett as um, a, a talent that could could launch a program, Bobby Labonte was not an obvious hire. Tony Stewart plucking him from IndyCar and pushing him to stock car racing was uh, a calculated risk that I, I mean launched them to another level of success. Um, Kyle Busch, the signing in, in before 2008 was a masterstroke. Everything they have done has been proactive and that is what has led them to the majority of their success. So when I see this 19 team just kind of fumble into the situation that they have, they have a, 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 an extraordinary race car driver in Martin Truex and a good crew chief in James Small. They are positioned well to compete for a title as we saw last weekend in Darlington, Um, but just to think that how they, how they got there and what this fourth JGR team has meant for the sport for a long time, predating, uh, its first ever race, 
uh, is pretty remarkable. I figured a lot of the points we were we just discussed we were going to talk about, but the, the fact that you bring up how much money this team that didn't exist may have made other drivers is so interesting. It reminds me of the NFL in, in terms of a few years ago, David, where every team that wanted a new stadium could always threaten to go to Los Angeles, right? Because there was no team in Los Angeles, and, and that was always the threat. Oh, the rumors would start, right, when, whenever a team wanted public money for a new stadium, and uh, now they have two teams in Los Angeles. Angeles. And now I feel like London or Toronto or hell, even Austin, if you believe that dumb report is kind of like that, that new threat. But there was the NASCAR version of this and it was the 19 or the fourth JGR team. That's so interesting to me. Yeah, I wonder what the next one will be. It might be a fourth Penske team. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I and, and I'm maybe they're not allowed to do that. I, I don't know. I don't know if we're ever going to see anything like that again. But for a while, this team, you're right, had an impact on driver movement contract negotiations and it made a lot of folks wealthy without actually being a car on the racetrack wow we start out episode 119 with a look back at how the number 19 joe gibbs racing team was built interesting stuff when your business is starting its championship run nothing matters more than finding and hiring the best team With Indeed, you have the power to build a dynasty by hiring more MVPs faster. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through March 31st. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applicants that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. No matter how the last game went, anytime you take the field, you got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. Indeed.com slash BlueWire terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, David, let's get the episode started because we are going to talk about passing and specifically the most efficient passers so far of 2021. But we will start even further ahead with a refresher course, right? Because we discussed this issue way back in episode 13, but that was over 100 episodes ago. So congratulations to us for making it this far. But if you are new to this podcast since then, or just new to our way of thinking, I still believe the skill of passing, David, is something that gets overlooked for a lot of people. It's not always apparent on the surface, But yes, some drivers are better at passing than others. And David, it's something you've been cognizant of for years, something you've been measuring for years. So let's just start with a refresher or from the beginning. How do you evaluate passers, what you see on the track, who's good, who's bad, and what you are looking for when when trying to judge that factor of racing and, and more importantly, success? Yeah. So there are two ways to evaluate and, and essentially two questions that I want answered. I want to know who can make passes utilizing the car that they have. And for that, I use adjusted pass efficiency. But I also want to know which drivers can make passes or score pass differentials well beyond what is expected from the speed of the car. And for that, I use surplus passing value. But we'll start with adjusted pass efficiency. This is a measure of how many pass encounters fall in a driver's favor. Once outlier laps or damage laps or uh, green flag pit cycles are omitted, and and those kind of things can goose the passing totals that you're going to see on Racing Reference or NASCAR.com, I divide the number of passes by the number of passes plus the number of times passed, and that is our efficiency. I'd venture to say that the workable range for a season is 45% to 55%, with 50% being a perfect balance, Uh, and the higher the percentage, the better. And this lets us know who made the best use of their pass encounters without putting an emphasis on the total 
of passes. And, and that's an important distinction because a driver could run side by side all day long and, and rack up a high number of passes. He would probably also have a high number of times passed. And that would be an inefficient use of his pass encounters, an inefficient use of his time on the racetrack. It would not help in gaining ground or expanding leads. So we have that number, adjusted pass efficiency. The other to consider is surplus passing value. And Alan, as you can imagine, it is easier to make passes with a fast car than with a slow car. Hmm. Therefore, drivers who pass well with fast cars might not actually be elite or even good passers. So with the help of a field-wide slope, that's a term that you probably heard in geometry class, lining up every driver with their average running spot, with their adjusted pass efficiency, we can understand what was the expected adjusted pass efficiency in hindsight, and note the difference between the expected and the actual adjusted pass efficiency, and that difference is the surplus passing value. And that ranges from uh, about negative 3% to about positive 3% on average for a season. It can go higher or lower based on the single race. But for the season, that's around the going rate for cars most regularly in the top 30. And again, this this may be hard to, to wrap your mind around because it's just something that isn't talked about a lot, right? We We don't a lot of people out there, a lot of us, you know, I'm, I'm raising my hand right now as I record this. We weren't always of this thinking that you can see it on the racetrack, right? Like, man, he's clearly faster. He's got to get around this guy, you know, but if it takes two or three laps and then other drivers can do it in one corner, we don't always make that connection between a talent or a driver's passing ability. But that is what these metrics that you've uh, that you measure help us kind of evaluate, correct? Yeah. I mean, there are, I mean, we, we, we've seen it on display. I think a lot of what we saw last weekend at Darlington, for example, it was tough to pass at the front of the field. And if you think towards the end of that race, who is at the front? You had Denny Hamlin in a fast car out front with track position. You had Kyle Larson, who's one of the best passers this season. We'll get into him a little bit more here later. Uh, and, and behind him, Ross Chastain. Ross Chastain had a very real shot of passing Kyle Larson and, and Ross to his credit has been a high surplus passer this season. He could not make a pass stick Kyle Larson. Same thing. A good surplus passer really couldn't figure out a way to get by Denny Hamlin. And, and that's what we saw. The, the video game move at the end of the race was really just a last ditch attempt. That was not a very good pass attempt. But on the whole of the season, those are two guys who at least had a decent shot at making moves, whereas drivers with a lesser passing ability um, or even slower cars are, are going to have a hard time even getting that close. Um, opening the pass encounter to begin with is tough. I mean, it, it, that's that's not easy to unlock. I mean, we see different styles. We see drivers come from the uh, the sprint car and midget dirt racing ranks. They're used to making passes in one corners. That's where dive bombs originate. Um, if you watch super late models or late model stocks, you you see drivers learn a pretty methodical approach. It's it's more um, prodding and plotting to understand where the driver in front of them will block or what they'll do if they do this, and then they go and do the other thing. Um, and, and those kind of styles, you know, at the, at the high end of our, uh, our surplus value rankings, we see Chase Elliott and Kyle Larson. Chase Elliott is of the late model type. Kyle Larson is of the dirt racing type. It's two different approaches, but there are elite in using both of those approaches to create track position. And that is uh, a, a recognizable skill. Certainly if you're watching as, as, as many races as, as I do, or folks in the industry do, and certainly it's a skill that shows up on the spreadsheets when looking at how these drivers are going about getting track position 
at a rate that far exceeds other drivers in similar equipment. Yeah, and that's one reason I like it because it you it allows us to learn more about the talent on the racetrack, even if it's the talent between twenty fifth and thirtieth. Uh, these numbers can kind of separate them, right? You can be a good passer in slower equipment, and you can be something of a poor passer with the fastest car out there, right? I mean that that's what you, your work helps us kind of measure and learn. So that's like we, we can't hammer this home enough, and I love talking about it. So let, let's look at twenty twenty one. Most efficient passers. Remember, you want as a driver, if you are coming up on a car, you want to pass that car as quickly and as efficiently as possible. You don't want to waste time going side by side. That kills your lap time. That a lot of us can understand. So in terms of 2021's most efficient passers, who should we be looking at? Looking solely at adjusted pass efficiency for this season, and I I might suggest that this is the number that uh, fantasy players and betters, uh, they should turn their focus. Kyle Larson, Chase Elliott, Kyle Busch, Martin Truex, and William Byron are your top five in regards to adjusted pass efficiency. And uh, I said earlier that 55% is sort of the going top end number. Larson is currently leading the series with a 54.93% adjusted pass efficiency. But in general, all of those guys can really move through traffic without much problem relative to most. Uh, some of that does have to do with speed, but there are high surplus passers among them. And looking directly at the front of the field, it's Chase Elliott, not Kyle Larson, who is the top surplus passer this season in, in terms of that metric. Uh, currently a positive 2.2% SPV Uh, Kyle Busch, Kyle Larson, and Martin Truex are also top five surplus value guys. William Byron is not, and that's uh, a disconnect. Currently a negative 0.15% SPV uh, for him, primarily reliant on speed, but that uh, specific SPV number is at least close to a balanced zero, so it's likely he's heading in a positive trajectory. So we talked about the most efficient passers, the other side of that, the least efficient passers are, are those maybe, you know, stand out or would surprise us again, because, you know, having a fast car or success does not mean you are the most efficient and or best, right? That there are some can be holes in a, in a resume sometimes. So who's the least efficient? Uh, the least efficient is BJ McLeod uh, <laughs> with just 44.19% of pass encounters going in his favor. Um, but in that same metric, Interestingly, a few playoff drivers, Michael McDowell with a 47.62% efficiency and Eric Almarola only a little bit ahead of him uh, with a 48.7% efficiency. Um, so this doesn't passing isn't um, a strong suit even for them based on the speed of their car. The surprises, Alan, come when looking at uh, the surplus Brad Keselowski and Matt DiBenedetto rank third to last and fourth to last, respectively, in surplus passing value. You know, we've pointed out in the past that they are very much short run guys, uh, and that is a discernible strength, but a discernible weakness is the long runs, it appears, uh, that does them in. Joey Logano, we've talked about a lot, is also a low SPV guy, a negative 1.46%. That is really the missing metric for him. Yeah, it it really has been for the exception of one season. Uh, and, and we might talk more about that later. And a, a big surprise for me, uh, just based on what we saw from him last year, is Christopher Bell. Uh, A year after ranking first in surplus passing value, he currently has the 10th worst mark in that regard, a negative 1.21% mark. And this could be regression. It could be a change in the competition around whom he's regularly racing. I mean, he's in a Joe Gibbs car. He's seeing better drivers. Uh, that, That could be a factor. Could be just a young driver still figuring things out. And it's honestly probably a little of all three. So I think just looking across the board, there's surprises really everywhere. And again, give, what we're saying here is given the speed and the cars that they are around, you would expect more out of them than they are showing. Is that a fair way to put it? Yes, absolutely. 
10-4. Just want to hammer that home. Can't hammer that home enough. All right. So the most efficient passers, uh, the least efficient are the ones that we would expect more out of given their speed and who they are racing around. We've covered that. Uh, in terms of improvement. All right. So sometimes, uh, you know, we just talked about some people who may have regressed or uh, kind of balanced out their careers or uh, just what they've shown in the past. Anyone this season who has improved his or her passing skills? You know what? There's a big one uh, from last season to this season. It's Corey LaJoy. His adjusted pass efficiency has increased by two percentage points, as has his uh, surplus passing value by two percentage points. And that has led to a swing of 118 positions this year on the racetrack. Okay. And so I'll just throw it out there. David, he's in a faster car this year. Of course, he's going to pass more cars. Isn't that obvious? response ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, i i mean the the speed is is closer to, to what he actually had last year darlington notwithstanding because that we gotta we gotta dig deeper on what that car was but for, for the most part his speed is on par uh this year his average finish hasn't changed by much last year his pass differential was 52 positions worse than his statistical expectation this season it's 66 positions going the other way beyond statistical expectation uh, the average finish I mentioned, it's only 1.4 positions better hmm. than last year. But let's consider something. Through 27 races, that's a total of meh, nearly 38 spots worth of improvement. So knowing what we know about the passing, if there's a speed improvement, he's got the same crew chief. Ryan Sparks does a great job in terms of strategy. It's it is easy to see how his improved passing acumen has fueled a lot of the growth that we've seen. Uh, certainly, he's been at the front of fields far more frequently than he has last year. It hasn't totally manifested in his average finish, but an improvement is an improvement, and there is something of a through line back to his passing. All right. And so what that tells me, I mean, especially if a lot of things are somewhat equal, it just it rises the thought in my head that that passing is a skill at some point. Right. It's not just dependent on your car. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, you, you have to understand that there's an intelligence factor. You, you Drivers study for a reason. They want to know the tendencies of other drivers essentially in order to to get around them. And some of them put that to effective use. Kevin Harvick did this for years, uh, back when he was in, uh, with RCR in his early days as Stuart Haas, he was the sport's world beater in regards to passing. Jimmy Johnson did this for pretty much his entire career, including the years in which he wasn't perceived as good and he wasn't winning races. He was still getting passes on the racetrack that were at least statistically beyond expectation. Um, and that was sort of just a common denominator. Um, you know, you can you can look at this two ways or, or choose to look at it uh, one of two ways. For surplus passing value, it might be a form of regression or progression back to that expected number. And maybe that's true if a driver ebbs and flows in this number from race to race or year to year. But there are drivers who consistently pass well beyond statistical expectation and that's Ben Larson of late. He has been that guy for pretty much every year of his Cup Series career, and he's that guy now, and he's in a faster car. So the strength is something that's always been there. It's just magnified, and we see it more frequently. That touches on what was going to be my next question, because again, if passing is a skill, there is something within the driver, the athlete, that helps them with this ability, if you will. So if passing is an ability or a skill, does how does like something like the engine package factor in 550 or 750? Does it? Because you know, I think about next year as well. Will good passers still be good passers right when we go to this next-gen car? Uh, just your thoughts on that. That's a great question. I mean, it, we we did kind of see that with uh, the shift from the previous engine package to this current one. We saw tracks go from places with high speeds needing high braking going into the corners. Well, now they're momentum tracks. How do you adjust for that? And the answer is it took some time. Uh, Kyle Larson in 2019, he did initially struggle out of the gate. The first half of that year, he was a below par passer. 
before the end of the season, I think his his rise and figuring it out, he got to as high as maybe fourth on the SPV ranking, and he's been there ever since. So it's a learning procedure. I mean, it, it, it's certainly a learning curve, and, and, and some are going to make that adjustment and some won't. And on the flip side of that, it might magnify someone's ability than uh, more so than a previous rules package did. You know, how guys that are kind of on on the balance line, I, I think of William Byron, Denny Hamlin, um, even Ryan Blaney right now, they've sort of teetered on being a, a uh, an above average passer or a below average passer. Well, how they adjust to the handling of the new car, the engine package of the new car is going to determine a lot of their success going forward into the next gen era. And that starts with the learning curve. They're going to have to learn the car in order to become comfortable with the car, because once you're comfortable with the car, then you can pretty much do anything you want with it. And that includes passes. And look, in you know, I, I think about your spider charts that you do on motorsports analytics. Uh, the more color you see on them, the better, <laughs> the better the metric, if you will. And a lot of that has to do with track position, right? I mean, that's what racing's all about: getting to the front. How you get that? Uh, there's a lot of ways to get it: restarts, pit stops, pit strategy. We have mentioned in the past, speed is the metric most correlative with success, if you will, right? You have the fastest car uh, that kind of lines up with how how successful you are. How does passing impact the results for the best passers? Uh, specifically for the guys that I mentioned earlier that are high in the marks this year. So Elliot Larson, Kyle Busch, Truex, Byron, they're, they're all in the championship hunt right now. Uh, so much so that they're they're probably top tier title contenders. Uh, and if they're not that, then they're one tier below. I think that's fair. And this is one primary strength passing. Uh, recent history suggests that this is a big deal. Since this rules package came into existence, Kyle Bush and Chase Elliott were top five passers in terms of SPV and they went on to win championships. Yes, they had the car speed, but they also delivered positions beyond what was statistically expected. And if we think back to last year's finale at Phoenix, Chase Elliott didn't pass pre-race inspection properly, and he was forced to start the race from the rear of the field. He went into that race as a high surplus passer. And I don't know that Hendrick Motorsports and Alan Gustafson even flirt with the idea of pushing the envelope on something uh, so much in a winner-take-all race if Chase Elliott wasn't such a reliable passer. I think this is Elliott's biggest strength. Mm. I think it's Kyle Busch's biggest strength. I think it's Kyle Larson's biggest strength. And it's an important strength to have because when their teams are able to produce fast race cars, like among the industry best, then this is not heavy lifting by the driver for the sake of heavy lifting. This is a strength around which other strengths are built and can materialize. And it's because of such reliable passing that crew chiefs can turn some of their attention to getting the car right and not having to worry as much about track position. We talked about pit stops. Every adjustment makes a stop slower. Well, if you have a good passer, you can make those adjustments and know pretty solidly that your driver has the ability to get any spots that are lost back on the racetrack. And when done right, this is a championship winning strength. So at the front of the field, like among the fastest teams, having a driver who can make more passes happen than what was expected that is a big deal. It is a big advantage. Good stuff. Good discussion about passing, how it's an ability, how it is a skill. I hope if you're not already doing it when you're watching racing on TV and more specifically in person, because you can see the whole field that way, that every time you see a pass encounter, you can now ask yourself, how efficient will this driver make this pass? And then just start thinking of things that way. And uh, it just it's a different way to watch racing and one I certainly appreciate. 
Moving on, David, let's start our Richmond race preview because we are uh, now on the second race of the NASCAR Cup Series playoffs. Denny Hamlin getting the, his first win of the season at an opportune time last week in Darlington. But now we move on to Richmond, another 750 horsepower track. Richmond, though, of course, a short track, uh, one of three on the Cup Series schedule. But even though it's a short track, even though it's a 750 horsepower track, which we have similar ones of, right? Richmond is, seems to be it's kind of unique in its own way in terms that drivers have seen some drivers seem to struggle there for some reason. I think back to Jimmy Johnson, right? He has three wins there, but it's one of his worst tracks in terms of average finish for his career. Uh, Ryan Blaney has said it before. Uh, Richmond, just not his sort of track. And the numbers back it up, by the way, David, 23.4 average finish for Ryan Blaney at Richmond. For some reason, this three quarters of a mile banked track is tough for some people. Why do you think that is? It is a mercurial host for NASCAR races, <laughs> I would say. There have been 12 different winners in the last 17 races, and that is a high number, but it doesn't symbolize parity or competitiveness, especially in the, uh, in the Gen 6 era. What makes Richmond a challenge is that a balanced handling car is elusive because ideally you want the car loose enough on corner entry to to turn around Richmond's unique corners there's there's really nothing else like it without being too loose on exit and this is difficult to achieve because a loose condition on corner entry can quickly become loose on exit and what is coveted is a straight line exit. That would be best to optimize the lap. And on top of that, tires can mess up all of this. The degradation is over 1.5 seconds. So how the car feels at the beginning of a run isn't how it feels at the end of a run. It's most likely that the car isn't going to be perfectly balanced. And as such, uh, and, and, and we'll probably see it again on Saturday night, about 40 drivers every race are just simply manhandling their cars. That is their primary concern. And when that happens, when the primary concern is the track and your relationship to it, then that takes away from competing against other teams in the way that we've come to expect. And that's part of the reason that optically these kinds of races appear bland uh, and are at times boring for for the for the teams. It's anything but because they are being challenged, and some drivers respond to that challenge better than others. Same with teams, but again, optically, and this has been clearer in the Gen Six era. I do think recent Richmond races have lacked sizzle, uh, have have lacked an entertainment factor. But make no mistake, even if someone goes out and yards the field, it isn't a cakewalk. The winner will have been challenged. Uh, track position, strategy, all of that is important, but also important, and maybe more so than at other tracks, is getting the handling close enough uh, for long enough to produce a winning race car. And it just seems so difficult to do from race to race at Richmond and if you never achieve it, if you never know what that feeling is, kind of like Ryan Blaney, then it's really elusive to achieve in the first place. Interesting. And that just piques my interest because it tells you how much the, the team and crew chief and setup matter along with the driver and what uh, he or she are doing. So good stuff there. Let's talk strategy at Richmond because one of the more memorable moments from the, the spring race at the track was the gamble that Brad Kozlowski and Jeremy Bullins pulled to avoid pit road during the second half of the second stage. Now this is Brad Kozlowski who had won the previous race there. I mean, no slouch at Richmond and it, it, they kind of took this, what many saw as an unnecessary gamble that that didn't pay off. So that was strategy in the spring race at Richmond. We saw strategy last week, David at Darlington with Denny Hamlin, a big influence on his win Hamlin's win because that did pay off. So do you think we see similar risks at the Richmond playoff race? Because obviously strategy calls can, can go either way, depending on who's making the call and just how risky they are. I think we'll see some things. Uh, Michael McDowell is 
an easy one. So I'll use this example. He ranks uh, very nearly 30th in average median lap time <laughs> on 750 tracks. And he is in the playoffs, um, but is in a seemingly insurmountable hole after Darlington. Now, is he realistically going to defeat Denny Hamlin and Kyle Larson at Richmond attempting to do the same things that they do? No, right? So (laughs) something outrageous probably does need to happen in regards to his strategy. Uh, Now, the degree to how outrageous, look, I've, I've, I've driven the bus right over Jeremy Bullins before, but I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt for this spring Richmond race. If he felt that he had a winning car in that race with Brad Keselowski, would he have done what he did in the second half of the second stage? I don't believe so. That car was the 14th fastest car in that race. It ended up finishing 14th and that call I think was something of a desperation heave in hopes that a caution would fall or that the track position might stick. And uh, yeah, I, I think some of the teams below the playoff cut line will need to figure out a way to leave Richmond with a finish that's probably better than the car that they are bringing. And I think that's what Bullins ultimately was trying to do. And given that Richmond seems to create these long green flag runs, uh, a long pit of a fuel window is one of the ways in which to do that. And no, it mathematically, it doesn't make sense, especially for teams that are slower. I mean, mind you, Keselowski isn't a bum and that was a Penske car in the spring and they were still passed outright for the lead as a result of the gamble. They went from fourth to first to 14th if I'm not mistaken. That's the difference in speed and that's the difference in tire wear. But again, if a team isn't a prolific point getter at this track, then why on earth would we expect them to to try and emulate Larson and Hamlin by doing what they do? Because they can't. You're not going to beat them straight up. And depending on the level of desperation, we should see some sizable risks uh similar to what we saw from keselowski and bullens in the spring all right this is the playoff so and again with teams in their situation uh perhaps you have to take those risks some would argue that what you know what denny and chris gabehart did last week was something of a risk and, and they ended up getting the caution and pitting one fewer time than or one less time uh pardon my english which everyone is correct uh, than the rest of the field but it paid off and it was cool to hear that, that denny and his crew chief were on the same wavelength when that happened uh because they did get the win last week now last time out in richmond david that race we were just talking about he dominated the race, but he did not win. At the end, it was a short run at the end of the race that kind of did him in. He led 207 laps, won both stages, all that stuff. Uh, so given what we know about Denny, how they're running now, what they did at Richmond earlier, uh, should we view him as the favorite this weekend? Now, before you answer, what I will say is that Denny Hamlin and crew, the 11 team, they are the fastest car on 750 horsepower tracks this season. Uh, Personally, it's hard for me to make an argument that someone else is the favorite. Therefore, in my head, if I use that logic, David, I guess Denny Hamlin to me is the favorite. Does that make sense? Yeah, and and I agree. Um, I I believe in in everything that you said, and, and I believe so, if only because now... He can run his own race and execute whatever game plan he feels, whatever game plan Chris Gabehart feels is necessary for stage wins and the outright race win. Because to be honest, they don't need a 50 point day for them. Maximizing the day at Richmond is really just about winning. So that's pretty freeing, right? Um, Hamlin had the second fastest car at Richmond. Martin Truex was faster in the (laughs) spring, but I, recognize the fact that we viewed him as a favorite for that race. And he strikes me as a favorite for this one because of everything you mentioned. And, and additionally, just the, the circumstances based on what, what happened last weekend and, and what he brings with him this weekend. Uh, he only has one true objective. Uh, something uh, worth mentioning that first race, the spring race, David, uh, the first stage, 11, 19, 22, 
Stage two, 11, 19, 22. And then the finish, 48, 11, 22, 20, 19. Martin Truex Jr. finished fifth with the fastest car that day. He did, and he will be um, interesting to watch. I mean, gosh, he, uh, put him on fresh tires. He's got the fast car towards the end of that Darlington race. We mentioned he's yeah. an astute passer, um, and he was moving great on long runs after just, I mean, God, that, that was a pretty bad penalty. But looking forward to this race, if Hamlin isn't the outright favorite, then there are two, and Truex is the other, and that could be really interesting. And that is why, David, and on my pick to win the Richmond race, I am going with the 19 team, even though all the things I just listed goes beyond logic for picking the uh, not picking the 11 car. For some reason, I'm just going to do it and pick the 19 team of Truex because in that spring race, I didn't know he had the fastest car. So that helps my pick a little bit. But he did lead, lead 107 laps that day. As you said, fast last week in Darlington, closing strong. I guess I just love being something of uh, something different sometimes. So uh, despite all the logic of everything I just said, I'm picking the 19 over the 11 for my win pick in Richmond. How about yourself? I'll hang with Hamlin. Uh, <laughs> what what we saw last weekend was the response that we'd been waiting for from from him and uh, from Truex. I was impressed with Kyle Larson. I was impressed with Kurt Busch, especially Kurt Busch. It's the playoffs. A few drivers and teams really brought it that first race. And understanding that this is the most pressure-packed time of the year, uh, and, and, and we saw that come to the surface too, I'm impressed by what Hamlin did. Uh, that was not an easy win. That was not an easy defense of that position after a, a pretty brilliant Chris Gabehart strategy. I think that easily continues at a track on which he is historically good uh, compared to drivers that uh, that don't have a commensurate record. We are all in on Joe Gibbs racing once again. David, those are our picks to win. How about our contrarian picks? Maybe a, something of a surprise winner, or as we always like to say, someone maybe punching above the, their weight class that might surprise us. Who are you taking for your contrarian pick at Richmond? Uh, I will go with the man who won the spring race, Alex Bowman. The the win itself was a surprise, and how it happened was a, a surprising element because it came from a restart. It should be noted that among playoff drivers this season on playoff tracks, he ranked in just the 13th percentile for restart offense. So that particular restart, uh, a bit odd, uh, something that we can't expect, but the underlying speed was there. He had the fourth fastest car that day. And on top of that, his adjusted pass efficiency, which we've talked about, was 56.17%, uh, a high number. That was the best playoff track for him in terms of passing for the season. He is a high surplus passer uh, with a high adjusted pass efficiency. He is one of those guys. Um, and, and and honestly, that he's worked to get himself to that point. He's become uh, a smarter passer. And so that combo, speed plus passing, that might be enough for him uh, to challenge for a win, and at the very least, uh, another 50-point day. All right, good stuff. Uh, I am taking another JGR card, David. Uh, Christopher Bell, I assure everyone, he will be on my NASCAR Fantasy Live team. Uh, 750s just seem to be his thing, and uh, David, I was looking at motorsportsanalytics.com. Overall peer, you know, pr- production this year, Christopher Bell's actually 19th. But on 750 tracks, he vaults all the way up to seventh. So they seem to be obviously his bread and butter this year. We saw what he did, what, in New Hampshire. He had great, uh, he was doing pretty well last week in Darlington until the three wide incident with Chase Elliott. So I am taking him uh, as my contrarian pick. I think, uh, you know, he rides the JGR strength train and I think he does pretty well. Remember, he had a top five there in the spring. So maybe it's not too contrarian, but not a, I don't think a lot of people are looking at Christopher Bell this weekend, but he will be on my fantasy team. So I am picking him as my contrarian pick. I don't think a lot of folks are looking at Christopher Bell to do much at all during the playoffs. I actually... I, I think he's strong enough to be one of the final eight drivers uh, because looking just down the line in his recent races on playoff tracks, he only has two that contain a, a pass efficiency below 50%. One is the Roval, and we know that he's cleaned up his road course racing acumen, and the other is Phoenix. On paper, there is the ingredients here for a deeper than expected 
playoff run. Um, I, I spoke on my uh, Motorsports Analytics Discord chat last week that I felt uh, strongly about Tyler Reddick's opportunity to go far in the playoffs. I, I feel uh, equally bullish on young Christopher Bell. All right, good stuff. So we will see who is uh, more correct <laughs> this weekend, this Saturday night at Richmond. Another good episode, episode 119 of Positive Regression. Don't forget, we are available on all major podcast platforms, no matter your device. Our entire back catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating or review. This stuff helps in spreading the word, and we, of course, notice this, and it is so appreciated. If you have any questions, we'd love to hear them. Uh, you know, sometimes we do an entire episode based on your smart questions, which is awesome. So reach out to us on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you are always working hard. I encourage every single person to go back and read your playoff preview. Even though the playoffs have started, you will learn so much by going to Motorsports Analytics and reading your playoff preview. But beyond that, David, what else are you working on? Oh, thank you so much, Alan. I appreciate that. Uh, this week, two articles on NBC Sports, uh, one of which will focus on Ryan Blaney, his, uh, his sort of his recent improvement and the usefulness and realities of momentum in auto racing in this playoff format. Uh, check those out and give me a follow on Twitter at David Smith MA. Good stuff there. And as always, check uh, check out my social channels uh, at Alan Kavana on Twitter, Instagram, Copa Kavana, Facebook, all that stuff, because uh, just my usual plethora of links and content. I hope you check out uh, Thursday's edition of Quick Hits. If you are indeed listening to this on a Thursday morning, thank you for being a subscriber. But yeah, Quick Hits, are the video I do for Speed Sport kind of sets the table for your racing weekend, NASCAR, and well, well beyond. So make sure you check that out on Friday afternoons. Check out Fantasy Live, NASCAR Fantasy Live on NASCAR.com. Myself and Amy Long help you with all your fantasy team decisions. New playoffs, or the playoffs are here, kind of new rules, kind of reset, so we help you with some of those decisions. I assure you, I was spot on with my picks last week, so make sure you watch this week and see if I can keep that up. And as always, again, just keep on my social channels, and I'll keep you updated on there. I'm taking over, David, the NASCAR Nation Twitter account. Uh, for NASCAR on Saturday night for its race. And so I'll be uh, talking on there and hopefully uh, helping educate and talk with a bunch of NASCAR fans as the race goes on. So that should be a lot of fun there. But as always, thank you for listening. We will see you next week. This has been episode 119 of Positive Regression. Have a great weekend, everybody. John, you want to look and feel your very best? Visit the team at Cool Contours. They are the number one cool sculpting provider in Virginia. Their award-winning team of certified cool sculpting elite and cool tone specialists work with you to create a fully customized treatment plan to achieve your dream body. Learn more at cool-contours.com. That's cool-contours.com. As ranked by Allergen in June 2021, cool sculpting elite is FDA cleared to be visible fat bulges in nine areas of the body. Some common side effects include temporary numbness, discomfort, and swelling.